I'm Lizanne Saunders, Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab, one of the largest financial services firms in the world, all devoted to individual investors. I hear it all the time from young women in college, young women in graduate school, trying to decide whether it's worth the effort to work on Wall Street, given the perception that it is kind of a boy's network and that you're going to bump your head consistently into the glass ceiling. But there are so many other types of roles inside this thing we consider Wall Street that I think are fantastic opportunities for women. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Lizanne Saunders is Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. She's a keynote speaker at many investment conferences and is a regular guest on CNBC programs as well as on Fox Business News. As Chief Investment Strategist, she has a range of responsibilities, including market analysis and investor education. She talks about markets, mentoring, and how women have an advantage in a mostly male-dominated field. So, Lizanne, you admitted to being bored reading the Wall Street Journal when you were in college. Sorry. That's all right. (laughs) And, you know, now you're this well-known markets and economics expert. So I'm just wondering, and hopefully reading our paper. Yes, of course, every day. Good. (laughs) So what changed for you? Well, I think some of it was just maturity and probably who and how we all are at 18 and 19 years old for starting in college and priorities maybe were a little bit uh, different, although there was a certainly a priority to get the work done. There was also a priority to get the play done. And I had not had any background in sort of the world of economics and finance, certainly at the high school level. Initially found it just a little bit boring to, to focus on newspapers. And that's not the case anymore. (laughs) How did you find that passion? I think it was my passion, which I I do have for what I do, really found me more than I found it. And it was a, a function of once I got out of undergraduate school, the I think my first job, and I, for all intents and purposes, I've had two jobs in 31 years, which I think in the in the world of, of finance and Wall Street is somewhat rare. And my first job at a combined company called Zweig Avatar, through that and through the people there and what I learned there, I fell in love with the business. And you know, the the one of the heads of the firm at the time was the late great Marty Zweig, and he really was just an icon and a pioneer, and uh, taught me a tremendous amount about how the way markets work, and in particular, the psychology of the market and psychology of investors and the behavioral side. And it just became uh, a fascination. But it was not something that I thought I would end up doing. In fact, if you had said to me in in college, if you'd done, you know, a 35-year flash forward and showed me doing what I do, I think I would probably have been more shocked than anybody else. You know, so much of the financial industry is trying to target women specifically, and we're hearing women aren't investing as much as they should be. What do you think the financial industry needs to do differently to perhaps get women more interested or excited? First of all, the, the demographics are such that this has to be a focus. It has to be a focus of of the industry, of women in the industry, about other women, but also I think younger people coming into the working world because I believe it was last year we finally crossed the chasm, if you want to call it that, whereby more wealth in this country right now is controlled by women than men. And that's a function of us 
us generally living longer and generally living healthier, but also more women are graduating from both college and and graduate programs. So I think the shift is in. And women are a bit different in terms of how they approach investing. And it's one of the reasons why women-owned and women-operated investment advisory firms are having such great success because it's not universal, but many studies have shown that women investors like the idea of working with other women and, and firms that have been started by or run by women. And I also just think it's a great industry for young women. I'm biased, of course, but I'm the first to offer up my view that I think this industry broadly and most components of it, I think, is a great industry for women. I think being a woman in this field is an advantage, not a disadvantage. How so? Again, a lot of this is generalizing, but I think when you are in an industry that is still arguably dominated by the middle-aged white guy, (laughs) just being a woman automatically sets you apart. I think that that's just a a benefit right from the get-go. I think women as investors and women who take care of other women investors. We, One of the reasons why studies have shown that women tend to be more successful investors, women investment clubs outperform male-only investment clubs, performance of firms at the advisory level that are female-owned tend to have better performance. And again, generalization, but maybe it's that intuition, that gut instinct that I, I know I personally rely on, less of the gambling I think mentality sometimes of men, a more of a methodical, thoughtful approach to investing to how markets work. I certainly personally know that at some of the most successful market calls, and I don't love using that term, but but views I've had, definitive views I've had on the market. I, I don't know. I think I think it had as much to do with my, my gut instinct and intuition as uh, as anything else. And I just think it's a, it's a great, I think it's a great field for, for women. And one of the things I love about it is the complete lack of monotony. It is changing every single day, which I think is exciting. What about being the only woman in the room and having to deal with things like guys speaking over you or, you know, extreme cases, guys harassing you? Have you dealt with I, that? You know what? Fortunately, there's not a lot of wood in here. I'd knock it otherwise. But I have not, in terms of the harassment piece of it, I have not faced that much in my life. It may have just been luck or luck in the sense that I have the two firms for whom I worked. It just, there was a lot of females in senior positions. And I, I believed in the character of organizations that I was associated with, which in turn, is a function of the the character of the leaders of those organizations. And it's not been something I've faced other than more in the periphery, out there traveling, speaking, uh, but nothing terribly egregious, fortunately. So I think that I have been lucky to not have that. Now, the, the sort of chauvinism to your first question about talking over you, maybe there is, you know, before we started this, we, we talked about Brooklyn. And, you know, I was born in Brooklyn. My parents were born and raised in Brooklyn. I am not a shrinking violent. No one has ever told me I'm soft-spoken. <laughs> so I think I can also give an air sometimes of uh, don't mess with me. I don't consider myself a harsh person, but I, maybe that air is such that there's a maybe a second thought. <laughs> you've said you've had some male mentors that played big roles yes. in your life. We're hearing a lot in terms of the fallout from the Weinstein thing and some of these other issues that are going on in the media right now that certain men may be reluctant to mentor women because they're going to be afraid of being yeah. accused of something. What do you think of that? And what do you say to the women who still want those mentorships? Well, I think it's a, sh- a shame if things like what happened with, with Harvey Weinstein color industries broadly and gender relationships broadly. I mean, I mean, it's that that was that continues 
continues to be an unbelievably horrific story. I actually met both the Weinstein brothers many, many years ago. I have a very dear friend who used to work for uh, for Miramax. You know, it was not long enough a meeting. On the, I, I, that was not a, a, a prelude to, ooh, she's going to tell, tell us her own juicy story about Harvey Weinstein. You know, when I think about the, the mentors that I have had, and they weren't formal mentors in any kind of specific program, but, you know, working for Marty Zweig and his partner, Ned Babbitt, who were phenomenal mentors. When I started in the world of television, it was in the era of Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, who was an unbelievable icon and mentor. And now having the great pleasure in the last 18 years of working not just for the firm Charles Schwab, but for the man Chuck Schwab. There's not a more iconic figure, I think, in the world of Wall Street. And I think nobody has done a better job democratizing investing for the public. So I just, again, I was very fortunate that the mentors that I had, they just happened to be male. And I hope there is an openness. I think it's wonderful. I'm a mentor at, at Schwab. I've mentored quite a few people. The two most recent were actually uh, male, so kind of in the opposite direction. But I, I hope we don't see stories like this color the power of mentorship, regardless of, uh, of gender. Sounds like some of your mentorships were pretty informal. How do you position yourself to be that mentee in such an informal environment? What well, in the case of, of my first firm's Wig Avatar, it was a very small firm. So I think the, the structure of the organization, the openness of how we collaborated was part of the culture of the firm. And I think the size afforded us that uh, opportunity. So I think, uh, you know, if, if Marty were, were still with us, I'm, I'm not sure that he would use that term to describe what he represented to me or maybe other people. But when I think back and I think about what the definition is of mentorship and I think about what I learned from him during that very early set of years in my career, that's the label I would apply to it. But I think it's just having somebody that is an influencer within an organization that you have proximity to and can learn from. Maybe there are other definitions for that word, but mentor is the one that I think of most easily. How were you able to rise up the career ranks so quickly? Well, in the case of, of my first firm, it was a, a firm that did believe in promoting from within, um, liked to hire young, energetic people and, and find niches uh, for them, gave us all an opportunity to learn a lot about the business almost in a mini training program type structure. Like used to be when you know I first got out of undergraduate school in the middle 1980s. Most people came to Wall Street, went to the big firms, and went into those training programs that gave them access to a lot of different areas within the large wirehouse firms. That was not the case at at Zweig Avatar, but we had an institutional side, we had a hedge fund side, we had a mutual fund side. So even within this firm of only some 50 some odd employees, there was an opportunity to see a broad swath of what was represented in the in the business. And so I think again. It was right place at the right time, the kind of culture of promoting from within opportunities that presented themselves and then just a lot of really hard work. I started at, at Zweig Avatar as a, well, the unofficial title would have been Grunt, but the official one was Portfolio Assistant, and I did whatever was asked of me in those early years. The most important shift for me that represented getting to the point where I am right now was a shift from a bottom-up stock-picking asset management role to the role that I have now, which was bigger picture, 
allowing me to to bring a lot of the behavioral part of the way markets work into the the mix. It was always something I was more fascinated by. I never really loved and had passion for the bottom up, you know, analyzing individual companies and income statements and balance sheets. So I I really sort of honed my skills in the top down. And then when the acquisition of U.S. Trust by Schwab happened, they decided to create the position that I still have and asked me if I would consider it. So it allowed me to really do a 180 in terms of my approach on a day-to-day basis. How come there's not more of you, more senior women in financial services? I think you do see it more in the corporate world than you do in on traditional Wall Street. And I, I'm not sure why. I think there is this perception, but I would, I would throw the label miss in front of it. I think there's a misperception because we already touched on it. I hear it all the time from young people, young women in college, young women in graduate school, or parents of young women who are looking for guidance and trying to decide whether it's worth the effort to go into financial services to work on Wall Street, given the perception that it is kind of a boys network and that you're going to bump your head consistently into the glass ceiling. I do think it is a misperception because I think the opportunities are great. If mine or somebody else's goal was to ultimately be the CEO of a major investment banking wirehouse firm, I think I might have a different perspective because I think those barriers do still exist. But there's so many other types of roles inside this thing we consider Wall Street that I think are fantastic opportunities for women. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. All new episodes this fall on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and NPR One. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Did you set goals for yourself? Yes, I wouldn't say precise goals. It was not, I want to be, you know, X position by this point in time. My goals are more, I want to be, I want to make sure I'm consistently enthusiastic about what I do, hungry for learning, digesting the fire hose of information that I have to digest on a daily basis. And my goal is to always try to communicate, whether it's in a podcast like this, or if I'm up on stage, or if I'm on television, or when I write or I record a video, one of my goals consistently is just get people to understand what you're talking about. I I think that that's one of the mistakes that I see often people make when they're in a role that requires public speaking or, or television is they purposely don't keep it simple. I tell you, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got was actually from Louis Rukeyser, who the first time I appeared on his show asked me whether my parents were in the business. And I said, well, my business or your business? He said, your business. Are they are they financial people? I said, nope, far from it. And he said, well, when you come out here and do the interview with me in 15 minutes, just have a piece of advice. Get them to understand what you're talking about. What's interesting about that is that most of the time, if somebody is kind enough to reach out to me, to stop me or to call me or send me an email to say, I really appreciate that you communicate in a, in a style and with terminology that most people can understand. More often than not, when people do that, there are people on the more sophisticated end of the spectrum. And I'm 
I'm over 30 years in this business, and I find that if somebody's goal is either to write in a manner that arguably they might be able to submit it for a Pulitzer Prize, but if they've lost me in the first two paragraphs because they've gone into this reference from you know, the ninth century, on, maybe it's the, the impatient side of me, but I start and I think, you've lost me. <laughs> Just got to get to the point. So that's my goal is to for people to understand. What's one thing you think women tend to misunderstand about investing? I think they think they think there's a lot of math associated with it, which there isn't necessarily a lot of math associated with it. That's why it's it's always funny when young people will talk to me that do want to get into the business. They'll emphasize their math skills. I just don't use math all that much in what I do. People think it's highly analytical and that you need to have you know a background steeped in accounting. And I really just think it's learning how to be an observer of what's going on in the world, distill that information, understand the implications that everything going on around in the world, whether it's in the economy or in the market, how it affects investors. A lot of it is really just common sense, learning how to navigate through the cacophony of information, digesting that information in a way that you can then ultimately communicate that out. Or, you know, if you're a money manager, distill that information into the structure of portfolios. But I think there is this perception that Wall Street and managing money and asset management is filled with nothing but, you know, accounting and math geeks. And I think that's that's the misperception that I hear most of the time. Do you get different questions about finance and investing from women than you do from men? Yes. I'm thinking about this more recently. It's been a remarkable few years, really since the end of the, the financial crisis, that we're in a nearly nine-year bull market. And most of the questions I still get, this is generally across the board, but I'll segment it sort of gender in a second. But what's remarkable to me about this entire bull market is how little love for it investors have generally had. Most questions that I get are, even today, to to this day, are some form of what keeps you up at night? What's the next crisis to hit? What's the next black swan? Aren't you worried about bubbles in? You know, fill in the blank. But I find that women tend to, men tend to ask those much bigger picture questions that tend to have a little little bit more of a doom and gloom theme to them, where I think women tend to ask more, I don't want to say more thoughtful questions in the sense that I'm sort of dissing the questions that that men, but more questions where they think, okay, I want to ask a question where hopefully the answer is going to inform me and it's going to inform how I think about the world or how I think about markets or my own investing. So the questions are less broad, more specific, not necessarily what should I do with my GE stock right now? But really, they're hungry for information to sort of help them frame their thinking, where the men tend to just ask uh, a bit more of kind of the generic big picture crisis. And they're tends to be more a more opportunistic theme around the questions that I hear from women and more generalized questions from men, which in turn is a generalization, of course, but that would be how I'd segment it. So if I'm a woman and I'm thinking of getting into the market, should I do it now? Well, so I actually love that question and I get that question in many different forms. It's some version of the get in or get out. I love it because I hate the question, but I love to talk about why I hate the question because, and it's probably some form of that question is the most common question you get when you go on television. You've got a you know three minute interview and if you do what I do, which is 
not not market time by any means, but have a view on the market. And it's the quick, easy question to ask. Are you telling investors to get in or get out right now? And neither get in nor get out is an investing strategy. It's gambling on a moment in time. And investing should never be about gambling on a moment in time. Investing should always be about a process over time. So that question then gives me an opportunity to answer that. And and I do think it's a danger ever to think about investing, to think about markets at some moment in time. Is now the right time? Because nobody has the right answer to that. I don't. Nobody else does. And if you have a get in, get out mentality, it requires you to be right both times, the get in and get out. If you think of it as a process over time, I think those investors that lengthen time horizon and, you know, back to the whole cacophony of information, there's a tendency and there's for people to think that they have to shorten time horizons and decisions have to be made right now. Movements in assets have to be made right now. And I think that's very unfortunate. It's wonderful that we have access to information at our fingertips right now. The problem is we also have the ability to act on that much more quickly. And time horizons have shrunk precipitously to the detriment of investors. So I think even though information is much more quick at hand, I think we need to lengthen time horizons because in the very, very short term, you name it, it can affect how markets behave. And sometimes it has no relation to fundamentals. But over the long term, fundamentals and prices and markets are going to be connected. So if anything, as everybody else shrinks time horizons, I think individual investors should actually lengthen time horizons and and take less of a trading approach to how they think about investing and managing their money. So I agree with everything you said, but I'm still going to ask you for a market prediction. So I think we definitively don't do predictions. I think the exercise that is often the thing that most strategists on Wall Street are asked to do, which is the typical year-end price target on the S&P. I, I don't know where the S&P is going to close at 4 o'clock today. I certainly have no idea where it's going to close at 4 o'clock on December 31st. And, and we really question the value of that, other than either the, the, the strategists themselves get to pat themselves on the back if they're close to right, or more often than not, the media gets to torture them a little bit because they were way off. That said, we, we have been, and I've been optimistic about this market from the get-go. I think we are getting into the later innings. That doesn't mean the bull market is imminently coming to an end. I think this next bear market will be a more traditional bear market that will come either because of significantly tighter monetary policy or because of markets sniffing out the next recession. We will have a recession again. I don't think there's one at risk in any time in the near future. But to me, the, the pattern is likely to be similar similar to what it's been in the past, leaving aside things like the great financial crisis, which was sort of an extreme anomaly. I think this next cycle would be a more traditional cycle. So I think we're in the later innings. This suppressed volatility is a function of a number of different things, but I think also does suggest some complacency, which troubles me a little bit. Investor sentiment has gotten a bit complacent. Some of these catalysts that we live, eat, and breathe every day that I think investors are flummoxed at how the market just continues to look past, whether it's natural disasters, geopolitical disorders function you know, domestic political dysfunction, that won't last forever. It's hard to judge what that catalyst will be, but we've seen in the past that it could actually be a relatively small catalyst. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some shocks that would spike volatility and cause some dislocations in the market. But I think the next major bear market will be that more traditional as it anticipates, say, an economic recession. So I think we have another leg up in the economy, but I also think it means the Federal Reserve is going to have to maybe step up to the plate a bit more than 
than what maybe not the consensus believes, but the complacent investor believes. And that that could cause some turmoil in the market. But I don't think the bull market's over. Last quick questions. Best investment advice you've ever heard? Actually, I'll say that most people are told that time horizon and risk tolerance are directly related. That if you're a young investor, you should be a more aggressive investor because you've got time on your side. And vice versa, if you're older and you're going to start to need those retirement assets. I, I don't I don't think that that's necessarily the appropriate tie. I, I know young investors who arguably have 40 years before they're going to need their retirement nest egg. But if they're going to look at their obsess over their portfolio values and panic at the first 5 or 10% drop, I don't care how young you are, you're not an aggressive investor. So I think really, truly taking the mirror to yourself and saying, who am I as an investor? What What's the likelihood of that, that I make those classic mistakes? Understanding you as a, an investor, the personality, the true aspect to risk tolerance as opposed to just tying it to some time horizon. I think that's what has tripped up investors more than probably anything else. And I was going to say the worst investment advice you ever heard, but it sounds like somewhere tied in there. Well, the worst investment advice I find is when I hear advice that's very cookie cutter in nature. If somebody, if I'm listening to somebody on TV and they'll get the question, well, you know, how much exposure are you telling investors to have right now? And when somebody answers that as if one structure, my view should never inform how everybody's assets are managed. It's a function of time horizon and risk tolerance and need for income. And so that has to be what defines how an investor should approach their assets. The, the cookie cutter answer that sort of one size fits all, that's, that really rubs me the wrong way when I hear that. Time now for your secrets. I'm Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab, and my money secret is to be mindful of inflection points and understand that being a contrarian at extremes is extremely valuable, that if you can kind of catch those inflection points when the economy stops getting worse and starts getting better, that's your, that's your best entry point. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring billionaire Suki Novogratz and Birchbox co-founder Katya Beauchamp. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.